I want to turn to Philippians chapter 1. For those of you who are joining us this morning, we're in the middle of a, a series on Philippians, but you're so welcome. It's going to stand alone this morning. I'm doing a, a second part from last week. Last week I spoke about living perspective, living with perspective. I'm going to do the same thing this week, but it does stand alone. But I wanted to encourage you to get the most out of the series. If you've missed some of the sessions or some of the sermons, get onto our website, newgen.co.za. Shaul is graciously filming it for us, and Beth, the growing video team. Thank you guys. And hello moms in the moms room. So that goes live feed to our moms. Isn't that amazing? Technology, eh? Borat again. <laughs> Actually, it wasn't him. It was Ali G that was technology. If you know, it's the same guy, but that's, that's who I meant last week when I said that. So that's one way that you can go and you can get the videos online, you can listen to the Audible, you can catch up. There's uh, some of the mind maps, which are just mind-boggling. If you don't listen, you won't know what they, what's going on, but it's just a way that you can really get engaged. And then as we've been saying from the start of the series, one of the main goals is not just to teach information, it's to teach you how to read God's Word. So the, the angle that we're doing in, in, the, in the style that we're preaching through the series is really trying to say, how can we help all of us engage more with God's Word and find tools that is not just for Philippians. That when you're reading Colossians and Ephesians and Exodus and Leviticus, you have some tools in your hand that you know how to approach God's Word in a helpful and compelling way. So we're going to do an exercise this morning which is going to help us around that too. But I get ahead of myself. So this morning we're reading from verse 18b. So the second part in your Bible it probably has a heading that says something like, To live is Christ. Paul writing and he says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. One of the most famous Christian mantras. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire, says Paul, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. For that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Can we pray again just as we open God's word this morning. Father, I want to thank you that as we come to your word, we don't sit above it, judging it, but it sits above us, instructing us, teaching us, showing us how to obey and how to live our lives for you, Father. As we come this morning, God, I'm just aware of so many different scenarios in the room. Lord, people in such different places, hearing with such different ears, facing such different circumstances, with different cultures. And God, I want to ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would come and each of our lives press truth home into our hearts. Take away some of our barriers to hearing you, God. Take away some of the barriers 
in my own speech and in the way that I, that I presented this morning, Father, that might hinder people from hearing your word. God, take that away from people's minds. Would our hearts be inclined to you, not for the sake of just learning, but we want to learn so that we can do. We want to live lives of obedience, Father, and we ask that you'd show us that in your word this morning. In Jesus' name we say, Amen. Alright, so as you read this text, the first thing I've been saying over the first four, four weeks, I think we're in week four or five now, somewhere around there, is that one of the first questions we've got to ask is, what is not immediately obvious? You come across a phrase, like we looked at in week two, we looked at this phrase earlier in this chapter, the day of Jesus Christ. If you don't know what the day of Jesus Christ is, the passage makes no sense to you. So we start off by looking at this passage and saying, well, what doesn't make immediate sense to us? And I want to do it through quite a simple grid. As you read this Philippians text that we read this morning, you'll see that Paul is painting two very distinct scenarios. All right? And they're on opposite ends of the spectrum. Anyone know what they are? Well, <laughs> now you do. <laughs> So on the one side, the one scenario is Paul saying, I might stay alive. On the other side, he's saying there's a really real possibility that I'm going to be executed. All right, so this is like polar opposite sides of what Paul's doing. And I'm going to, are we going to read the text again? And as we read it, we're going to put different things into those different two scenarios. And you can see that the whole way through this text, Paul is juxtaposing, I might stay alive, oh, but I might also be executed which we know eventually does happen a few years from this writing of this text. And so we start and he says, yes, I will rejoice. And that's about last week. So if you, if you didn't get last week, go and listen to, to last week. I will rejoice, he says. He's, he's speaking about the gospel being proclaimed. And some Christian preachers, Christian preachers are proclaiming the gospel of Christ in a way that's, that's full of envy and malice. And they're wanting to actually afflict Paul with the preaching of the gospel. And we spoke about some of those motives last week. And then Paul concludes that section with saying, what, what shall I do? What shall I do? And he says, in all things, I rejoice because the gospel is proclaimed. My paraphrase of the last verse that we looked at last week. And now he starts this section and he says, yes, I will rejoice. I will rejoice. He says, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, we'll come back to that just now, this will turn out for my deliverance. So what do you think Paul wants to be delivered from? It's a question. What do you think he wants to be delivered from? Death. Execution. That's the most obvious one, right? So there's two, there's two scriptural interpretations here, and most commentators lean towards one of these two. The one thing is that they're saying that it might be a dual reference, and the one part of it is referencing back into the text we looked at last week. And remember that we spoke about people saying the way that Paul's living the gospel, that he's suffering and he's in prison, that's not the true gospel. And they're taking the opportunity to spread a kind of power and glory and prosperity gospel. And they're accusing Paul while he has no platform to defend himself. So one of, the one of the ways that he might be delivered is from them. In other words, God's going to justify me. That's the one. So it's kind of like this echo of what we did last year. But the last week feels like last year. What we did last week. But in the context of this scripture, it's really clearly speaking about Paul saying, I might die. I might be executed for my deliverance. And then he goes on and he says, 
as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. Now, what is he ashamed about? Okay, so what's about to happen is that Paul is about to stand trial. That's how it's going to be decided, which scenario is going to end up happening. He's about to stand trial, and he's saying to them, I want you to pray for me, and the Spirit of God is praying for me. He's interceding for me, and we'll come back to that just now, so that I will not be ashamed. I will be able to defend the gospel rightly in my trial so that I won't lose courage, so that I won't stand up there and sound like a gibbering idiot, that I will not be ashamed. And then he carries on with this powerful phrase and says, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. This is the part that's so powerful, whether by life or by death. So I actually, I put them in, in different camps will not be ashamed and I put the other one over there but that with full courage now as always and then I thought actually that's wrong it should actually it's like it's, it's like the umbrella he's saying in both of those scenarios whether I live whether I stay alive or whether I'm executed in both of them he's saying God let me not be ashamed let me with full courage face either living so he needs courage to keep on living and we're going to talk about why it's so hard for Paul to keep on living or he really needs courage for his execution and for the trial and whatever's going to come through that. Can you, can you start to see this, these two scenarios playing out in this text? It's beautiful. It's beautiful, but it's scary. And then when you understand that, he says that, that Christ will be honored in my body whether by life or Christ will be honored in my body by death. Now verse 21, which is the one we love to put on our fridge magnets or whatever, our bumper stickers on our cars, now suddenly it comes into focus. When we see what Paul's talking about, now he says, because for me to live is Christ. That's my reason for life. And for me to die on the execution side is gain. If I am to live in the flesh... Goes on the left hand side, scenario one. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. In other words, I can keep spreading the gospel. I can keep planting churches. I can keep encouraging you as a human being here on earth. I can be of some service to you. And then he says this phenomenal little piece. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. And this morning we're going to dig down into some of the emotions in this passage. I'm not an emotional guy, but Paul is in this moment saying, I don't know which one I want. Imagine facing execution and saying, hmm, not sure here. What's going on in this man's mind that he says that? He said, I'm hard pressed. I'm struggling to decide between the two, the two scenarios. And then he just comes out with it and he says, my desire, this is what I want. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Wow. But scenario two, or scenario one, whichever staying alive. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. 
for your progress and joy in the faith. We're not 100% sure, but it seems as if, we know Paul was released, but it seems as if he made one more missionary journey that went into Philippi, went into that Asia region, his fourth journey. So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. Now, that's just a way of framing or understanding what Paul is talking about. So hopefully that really clears up what he's actually getting at in this text. Otherwise you get a bit lost because he's jumping between this perspective and that perspective. And when you see it like that. But what he's really talking about and what we're talking about this morning is eternal perspective. All of these things, when you start to look at them and you understand what they mean, you're like, man, this man lives with eternity in mind. Last week I called it uh, standing on the, on the bow of a different boat. Like we stand on the bow of earth and we try to see our, our circumstances on the ship and we're looking. I should have used the crow's nest because you've got much better perspective. We're standing on the crow's nest on, on earth's ship and we're looking. And then suddenly there's moments where God takes us and put us on a heavenly ship and we're in the crow's nest of this heavenly ship looking with fresh and new perspective. And it's like Paul's got this. When he says phrases like, with full courage now as always, that Christ will be honored in my body. In other words, I don't care what happens to my body. What I care about is that Christ is honored. That's eternal perspective. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But my desire is to depart and be with Christ. He's not saying I'm afraid to die. He's not saying I'm just okay with death. He's linking it to honoring Christ. He's saying that even if I die, there's a gain for Christ. I don't know how he's going to do it, but somehow even if I'm executed, it means the gospel's going to spread more. Just like we spoke about in week two where we were talking about this unusual act of God in sustaining his church and then using Paul in prison instead of making his critics shut up, it gives him more platform. It says more people were emboldened. More people began speaking. And it's the same kind of idea. He's saying even if I'm executed, there's gain for the kingdom. I don't know how. And it's almost like a prophetic look into his future because that's exactly what happens. Paul is executed. He's beheaded by historians. The Bible doesn't record it, but historians record that he's beheaded. And the church explodes and continues to grow. He's saying the only reason that I live is Jesus Christ. But if I die, wonderful. I gain personally by going to be with my beloved. So I have, personally I have almost zero fear of death and I attribute that singularly to a grandmother that I often speak about here in this context who would delight in the idea of death. Not in a, in like a, in a, in a morbid kind of way. She would just wake up and some mornings she would just come down to breakfast and I lived with her for 10 years and she would say, I just can't wait to see my beloved. I just can't wait to see my Jesus. And it's a beautiful thing. And as a little child, it instilled in me this thing that, man, this is a beautiful thing. I'm not scared. And Paul's saying, for me, I'm going to go and be with my beloved. And that God will somehow use this for furthering the gospel. And then he, he ends off with like, it's like the magician's, what do you call it? Like, you know, the kind of final flare, the, the kind of reveal at the end. And he says, all of this for Christ's glory. When he finishes this, this section off. 
Whatever happens to him, glory in Christ, which is just another way of saying, be honored in my body, whether I live or die. Be honored, God. Be glorified, Jesus. Beautiful, eh? Eternal perspective is what I'm speaking about. And just it's just so clear. It's just all over here, Paul's eternal perspective. But then I want to pause for a moment, and I want to undergird this, because I think we need to be careful when reading the Bible and when reading Philippians that we don't miss the human pain. We don't miss the reality of what Paul is facing. This is not some cyborg running on like the smell of an oil rag, with, devoid of emotion. This is a man facing an, an incredible trial in his life. And I must say a very mature man. He's been, he's been, he came to know Christ about 20 years prior to this point by a good estimate. So not like a brand new believer, someone who's mature in Christ, but he's, he's struggling. And he's, this is how E.F. Scott says it, an author of a commentator on Philippians says, his language at this point is broken and obscured. Do you have a slide for this one? His language at this point is broken and obscure, reflecting the perturbation or being perturbed of his mind as he turns from one alternative to another. Am I going to live? Am I going to die? And he cannot arrive at a decision. But we must add that the perturbation is caused only by the claims of the alternatives and not by the uncertainty of his future, which he knows to be entirely and securely in God's hands. So Paul is not perturbed, he's not afraid, because he understands that God is provident and God will hold him in his hands. But as he faces this life and death thing, he's wrestling. And the guys are saying, I don't know this, because I didn't even know whether the Bible was in Greek or Hebrew. Remember like three weeks ago, I had to ask J.B. But Ralph Martin, the author of the commentary on Philippians, says, the agitation of Paul's mind is clearly seen in the broken syntax of his writing. In the broken syntax. So in, in the way that he's actually writing this or dictating this or whatever he's doing, is actually you can see his angst. He's jumping around his thoughts like in your diary when you're in a panicked state and you're writing stuff all over the place. And yet at the same time, he's completely rested in God. But my only point is this. Don't, don't miss the human beneath the writing. Don't miss the emotion, because what happens when we do is that we begin to put on to other Christians, you shouldn't struggle. You shouldn't have emotion when you're going through trial. You shouldn't have hurt. Come on, man. Have joy. Rejoice. And you're going through the deepest, darkest day you've ever been in your life. So in summary of the context of this scripture, Paul is saying life is the Messiah for me. It is the Messiah and spreading the gospel. Death is equal to being present with Jesus and continuing to spread the gospel. He's like, it's an absolute win-win. Whatever happens, whether my business fails, whether it rises to great apple heights, whether my marriage is restored, whether my child is alive or dead at the end of this scenario, it's a win-win. Really? See, there's, there's no fake Christian bravado here. There's no kind of fatalism like, oh, what will be, what will be, you know, I'm, I'm just going to let it happen. It's, that's, not, that's not what's going, it's not going on here. But Paul, 
Paul is grappling deeply with his suffering. We're going to look at some of that in Corinthians just now. And with sorrow and with hardship. And it's deeply, deeply, deeply appalling for Paul to die. Look at the text. He doesn't say it's a little bit better. It's, a, it's maybe better. He says it's far better for me. And yet he's incredibly selfless in wondering in that moment, I wonder what's best for others. I wonder what's best for these Philippians. What's, what's more necessary on their account? All right, so you, are you all with me? You all got the context of what we're talking about, all right? Hope I've kept you with that. Now, I want to just make two brief points into application into our lives. And what does this mean? And we'll keep unpacking the scripture as we do that. But the first point is this, that eternal perspective, if we can grasp Something of what Paul is showing us here in Philippians, eternal perspective, it arms us, it arms us, it equips us, it readies us for the trials and the suffering which are coming in our lives, or maybe you're right in the middle of them right now. If we can get hold of some of this, I'm going to ask you two quick questions. What are you facing today? I I know some of you, I know some of what's going on in this congregation It's not easy. Some of you are facing financial stuff which is next level difficult. Candace and Eugene facing a mom critical in hospital right now with cancer, incurable cancer. How do you how do you cope with that? Bates and Jenny got up and shared three weeks ago about about little Sam, but what you guys might not know is that Jen had an operation this week. I mean, just how much more can get put onto their plate? They can't quite figure out what's wrong with Sam, so they're taking him for his tonsils out and grommets and all sorts of stuff, and they had to delay that operation so that Jen could get on the operating table, and three hours of surgery later, she's lying in bed at home this morning. And you're like, God, what are you doing? What's going on? What are these trials upon trials? And I think, of that, I think of that song, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll. Do you ever feel like that? Sea billows roll. Do you know the story behind that song? I don't have this in my notes, but it just came to me as I'm sharing this with you. It's a story of a father who was a missionary, right? He's a missionary. He's doing God's work. And he's a businessman and he's about to depart. But as he's going, he has to wrap something up with his business in New York. And so he sends his wife and his four daughters on ahead of him in the ship. And they're going to London and he's going on a later ship to meet them. And then he gets a telegraph which says, All but me lost at sea from his wife. And their ship had sunk. Now this man gets on a ship going to meet his wife having lost four daughters... And as he goes over the point of this accident where this other ship went down, the captain calls him to the rails and says, Sir, below these waters lie your daughters. And he went back to his cabin and he wrote that when peace like a river attendeth my way, when things are going well, or when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, whatever you give me, God, whatever my lot, I've chosen to say it is well, it is well with my soul. What kind of perspective gives that man that right to write that song? What kind of father sees his children or doesn't see them but hears of them at the bottom of the ocean and goes back and writes, it's heavenly perspective. It's being in the crow's nest of a boat that I don't feel I've even yet touched. 
heavenly boat where you're on the crow's nest and you're saying, Father, this perspective is beyond anything I can grasp or imagine. Okay, back to my notes. What are you facing today? What is the great trial that afflicts you? And then let me ask a second question for you. What do you think it is that's going to fix that trial? If you're facing bankruptcy, is it the miraculous gift of money that suddenly appears, your million rand that appears in your bank account that's going to, that's going to save you? If you're facing cancer, is it, the, is it the healing? What is it that we're longing for, that we're hoping for? What's going to fix this problem that I'm facing? And yes, God does those things and God can do those things. But have you ever stopped to wonder if maybe what we really need as well as praying for those things, is a great big dollop of eternal perspective. Where we see, God, my stuff is, is, is small. Your story is huge. I've been carrying my stuff for 36 years, God. You've been carrying your stuff for eternity. And what we need is this great big dollop of eternal perspective. All right, we're going to do a, a Bible reading exercise together. So what I want to do, how many sections have we got here? Uh, I need to divide you guys into four, okay? So let's go, let's go here from Paul and Tam. So that you guys are a block over there, all right? You're a block, and then you guys, up to you guys over here. So this, you're all a block. Sorry, this is quite dramatic. You guys are the back over here, and maybe a few rows over there, and then the rest of you in a group, okay? You guys are chapter one. Chapter 1 of Philippians. You guys are chapter 2 of Philippians. You guys are chapter 3 of Philippians. And you over there, you chapter 4. Now what I want you to do is I want you to go through the book together. So you can throw your chairs around. You can get into little groups. Get into smaller groups of maybe 4s or 5s. I want you to go through chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4. They're not long chapters. They're very quick. And I want you to look for circumstances or suffering or trial, whether it's implied or obvious. So like an obvious one is, I'm in prison. An implied one is more like, people are saying bad things about me. No one's actually like clapping you on the head, but it's still really bad and people are saying bad things about us. Okay, we've got five minutes. Go for it. Go, go, go. No, no, no. Go. All right, let's get ourselves back into some kind of confirmation. Configuration is the word I'm looking for. So Michael, Michael Eaton, one of, my, one of my favorite personal theologians, says that he's, he's more and more convinced, while well, he died now, so he can't be any more convinced, but before he did, he said he's more and more convinced that we should be reading Scripture in groups more than alone. Interesting. And we should be reading together more in groups than we should be reading on our own. It's beautiful, isn't it, to sit and read your thoughts. And all of this is we're training. We're training. We're getting muscle. How do we read our Word? How do we how do, we do stuff? All right. Chapter 1 group, you guys will forever be known as chapter 1. Throw out your verses for me. Just, just text, verse, whatever the case, whatever you want to do. Go for it, Michelle. Which one did you get? 
Which one is that? 113. 1 verse 7. Can you throw up chapter 1 for us here? So my, there we go. My imprisonment is for Christ. I've got 113. What else have you guys got? Anyone else in that group? A man's 17? Yeah. Yes, talking about his chains. What about, yes, someone's got 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. It's not easy when that's happening against you. Anyone pick up verse 22? I thought that would be the most obvious one. If I am to live in the flesh. It's that big if. That would cause me a bit of trouble if I thought I might be dying. Any others in there? Hard pressed between the two. I didn't pick up that one. That's where's that verse? Verse 23, and then the last one I got was verse 28. Not frightened in anything by your opponents. So they were being intimidated. All right? This is, this is secondary to, to, I just wanted you guys to do the exercise and to look through this lens into Philippians. All the different chapters, just seeing all the inferred and the actual suffering that Paul's going through. Can I, just for the sake of time, I'm going to do chapter 2, 3, and 4. You might have found a few other ones. And we're going to have gold stars at the back door waiting for you <laughs> at the end. But a few, just a few from chapter 2. I wasn't trying to make an exhaustive list, list, but a few. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, verse 2.17, which is a, a, a metaphorical way of saying, I'm the offering. I'm the car being executed as an offering. Verse 21, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. So Paul's contending with these people who don't not interested in Christ. Verse 27, speaking about Epaphroditus, chapter 2, verse 27, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. And verse 230 is a bit more obscure, but risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. And Paul is saying, I was lacking. Something was lacking in what I had. Chapter 3, you guys are the, you guys are the champions. You guys had the hardest one, eh? Did you guys get some in there? Great, throw them out. Verse 2, look out for the dogs. Doesn't mince his words, eh? Look out for the evildoers, for those who mutilate the flesh. Another one? Verse 8. I didn't get verse 8. What's verse 8? <laughs> what was it? <laughs> verse 6 and 12, Ryan? Yeah. Beautiful. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Yeah. Yes. May share my sufferings, becoming like him in his death. The last one is out of there is 18 and 19, but many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears. And you hear the pain? Walk as enemies as the cross of Christ. This is a beautiful one because it's suffering because people haven't come to know Jesus. Their end is their destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory and their shame with minds set on earthly things. Chapter 4. You guys, what did you guys come out with there? Come on, shout it out. Where's our, where's our preachers in the midst? 
Verse 12 and 13. Exactly, I've learned in whatever situation. Did anyone pick up verse, verse 2? Verse 1. Yeah. Yeah. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for. Beautiful, the loneliness in them. So I, I picked up verse 2. I plead with Udiah and I plead with Sinchichi to change their names. I mean, what are those names? To be of the same mind of the Lord. <laughs> but here's these two people that he knows by name, these two women who are fighting, causing conflict, and he's saying, I plead with you. I'm begging you. Any others out of there? Yeah, it was kind of you, verse 14. It was kind of you to share in my trouble. You've taken some of my troubles upon yourself. Verse 15. No church entered into partnership with me in giving except you only. You were the only church that helped. It's Paul saying. And I'm sure we could find another 20 if we really applied our minds and our creative thinking to it. I want to read some texts which are far more explicit. Maybe the most, maybe the most famous one is, is 2 Corinthians 11. And when you read from verse 23, Paul begins to defend himself as an apostle. And he speaks about everything that's happened. And he says this. I've had far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and then he counts them, and often near death. Now, let's just listen to this text. It's unbelievable. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, lest one. 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, and he doesn't carry on to tell the whole story. He was stoned and left for dead. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from our own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness. He couldn't go anywhere, this poor guy. Danger at sea. Danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from all these things, there is daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? Am I not weak? Just gives a little synopsis. Can you see why it makes sense when we go back into Philippians, why Paul says, I'm ready to go? Seriously, like, imagine living this life, the suffering and the trial. And then something incredibly beautiful. If you've, if you've ever fought with depression, if you've ever struggled with, with hopelessness, I grew up in an, in an environment and when I was at church where it was kind of like pull yourself toward yourself, you know? Maybe you've even heard people say Christians shouldn't get depressed and some of these things that we throw out. Man, I want to, I want to encourage you deeply. I, I had such a black and white view on this. And when I was in my early to mid-twenties, kids started coming. We had uh, multiple businesses and it was under so much pressure. And I went through about two years of God just taking me into the deepest, darkest place I could imagine and for the first time in my life I felt like I couldn't dig myself out I felt like I could not make myself come out of this thing and I in that moment I, I went when I came out of it I remember journaling and saying to God what else have I missed 
I thought this was just a black and white thing, God, and I realized that this, going through it myself, and then coming out the other end, and then saying, God, what else have I arrogantly proclaimed? This is black and white. Yeah. Remember last, last week, Ecclesiastes, let your words be few. We need a bit of that. But listen to Paul and how vulnerable he is in verse 8 of 2 Corinthians chapter 2. If I've got the wrong text here. Maybe it's 1 Corinthians. I've actually got it on my notes. Let me read it from here. So you'll have to go and, you'll have to go and check which. I think it might be 1 Corinthians 2 8. Anyway, I've written it down wrong, but you can go and find it. This is what he says. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Those of you who have been through those dark places, have you ever felt that? Despair of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the penalty of death. But now immediately he turns to his eternal perspective. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God. And look at what he appeals to, who raises the dead. He's like, it was like we were dead. But then God, who raises the dead, raised us. He delivered us from such a deadly peril. And He will deliver us. On Him, we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessings granted us through the prayers of many. I need to start winding down toward a close here. So let me quickly speak to us through these texts in Philippians and what we've been doing, the exercise we've done and these two that we've read in Corinthians. I want to just pull out four very simple things in the so subtexts. It's like I'm a Baptist this morning, one big test, four subtexts. If you have any subtle, even subconscious leanings towards the prosperity gospel, and by that I mean that you think you have some divine right that your children don't die because you follow Jesus. Or your business doesn't fail because you follow Jesus. And that you're going to have a wonderful, easy life tripping through the daisies. And that you're never going to face depression. And you're never going to face marital strife or any of these things. And we want to say that this is, this is somehow the gospel. Come to Jesus and he's going to fix your stuff. If you have any of that subconscious stuff sitting in your head... Read these texts again. They blow them out the water. You can't reach that conclusion. A suffering-free gospel is not a biblically-based gospel. Fact. It just isn't. You cannot legitimately build a case for us having this pleasant, trial-free, effortless Christian life. And the sooner that we come to grasp that, the sooner that we come to listen and actually listen to what Jesus says when he says, in this life you will have troubles. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. When we read in Psalms and we see David say, yea, though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, Lord, take me out, take me round, take me anywhere but through. No, no, no. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Where's my comfort? Not in that I'm not going to have trials. My comfort is that your rod and your staff, which are metaphors I can't go into now, are with me. You have delivered me. You put a table in front of my enemies. That's the joy. Man, this prosperity gospel thing needs a bullet in the head. 
Second thing that we can take out of these texts is that it gives us an incredible window into how to live, actually apply suffering in our own lives. Do you guys remember last year I showed you a clip of Estelle, who's one of my really dear friends, and she was emaciated, and she, she died a few weeks later from cancer, and before she died, she said, I want to, I want to put a video out to, to tell people what God's been doing. And I remember walking into her room in Somerset West and just seeing her, she, she was just a shell that was left of what she had been in this cell that I knew that was so full of life and joy. And then I looked to her, I mean, she, I was sitting there talking to her and I was crying because, you know, it was, it's hard watching that. And then she said, my book. I looked next to her bed and she wanted her book. You know what she's reading? She's two weeks away from death. She's reading, don't waste your suffering. Don't waste your suffering. That's profound. And I was like, Estelle, this, will, this, this preaches. This, this, what's going on with Paul? This preaches eternal perspective. When we live through suffering, this teaches us we can have great hope, great endurance. Some of you this morning, you feel like you can't endure one more step. You can. Not because you're great, because he's great. Because the hands that carry you are great. Thirdly, we receive comfort in knowing that we can be taken to the depths of despair and brought back again. That God will sometimes allow us right into the depth of the whale and then tell the whale to spit us out in the Jonah metaphor back on the beach. That even when you felt like you had died or maybe wished you had and just lacked the courage, that God raises the dead. That's the metaphor that Paul Appeals to in Corinthians, the text I couldn't find. And then the last little point out of this section is that the community of believers, prayers are powerful in bringing us through. Do you see at the end of that verse in Corinthians how he appeals for them to pray? And then if you go back into Philippians, the text that we're looking at this morning, look at, the, look at verse 19. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Don't, don't you love how he appeals there to both the human and the divine? Through your prayers. Even though God's the one answering those prayers, that they're still appealing. This is one of Paul's constant appeals. If you read his letters, pray for me, pray for me, pray for me is what he's saying. Guys, and this is, this is the point that I'm trying to get at when I was speaking about that, that understanding Eternal perspective arms us, it equips us, it gets us ready for the trials either that we're facing or that we're going to face in the future. I don't want us to leave Philippians with this kind of happy-go-lucky, skipping, skipping through the daisies idea of what Paul's actually facing. This is deeply important if we're going to apply this into our lives, that people's suffering, our suffering, our suffering must be related to the authentic Paul. And what he's actually gone through in his life and what he's facing and what he's faced where he feels like he wants to die. And Philippians is so powerful for us because Paul takes time to explain and defend his joy. It's not just fatalism. It's not just, oh, it'll be, what will be. Oh, there, my child died. I've got five to worry. That's not what he's, I've got five. It was about me. That's, that's not what he's saying. He's not just saying some casual, flippant thing. He's just taking time to defend his joy in order to encourage the Philippians. Today I want to ask you, do you really believe that God can sustain you through the deepest, darkest trial? Do you? Do I? 
When you've longed for death or depression has been so deep that you couldn't see your way out of it, do you still hope in God? You had an experience of losing someone that you loved and it felt like your life shattered into a million pieces on the floor and you had no idea how to start putting it back together again. In those moments, take hope. Maybe in your experience, someone's told you that Christians shouldn't be depressed. Maybe in your experience, someone said that it's your lack of faith which caused this or that going on in your life. I've had that. I've had pastorally people say to me, I've been told that it's because I lack faith that my mom is this or my child is or my... This stuff wrecks havoc when you don't, when you don't get God's word. Maybe you felt like an unworthy or like a second class Christian because everyone else seems to be suffering with joy and you're the one who's, who's facing all these emotions. You're the one who's like, God, I don't want to get out of bed. And so you've started to fake it. And this morning I want to, I want to ask you if you've experienced anything like that in your life. I believe that God wants to come and blow it out the water. Wants to come and take that falseness off of us. Take that, how are you, brother? Oh, I'm well, thank you. Meanwhile, your husband's thinking, what? Take that falseness off us. Were we able to engage as a community, authentic about our sin, authentic about our suffering, authentic about the situations that we've put ourselves in as well as the ones that God's put us through? A beautiful quote that a guy read up at this conference this week. Charles Spurgeon says, God is too good to be unkind and he is too wise to be mistaken and when we cannot trace his hand we must trust his heart when we cannot trace his hand when we can't see what he's doing we can trust a good father let me close with a very brief second point eternal perspective makes you selfless so the first one was eternal perspective arms us for the trials and circumstances that we face. The second one is eternal perspective makes us selfless. In this text, in Philippians, when we read it through the right context, we see so clearly that Paul takes what he would prefer and he puts it on the back burner of his mind and prioritizes what others need above himself so you see it in verse 23 i'm hard pressed between the two but my desire is to depart and be with christ for that is far better and then he says but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account do you see the selflessness i would rather go but you need me this when i, when I read it it's just so struck me that the true sacrifice for Paul is not dying. It's not dying. That's not the true sacrifice. The true sacrifice for Paul is staying alive. Staying to help these people. And it brings into focus a few startling things for me. The one that it just immediately, when I was thinking about this and reading this, I was like, God, that's not me. When you say, hey, Paul, either we're going to kill you or you're going to go outside and do some serving. Man, I'm already out the door. But Paul's saying, like, it's a, it's, a, it's a sacrifice for me to stay and serve you. The other thing which it brought to mind so instantly is what I'm doing today, what you're doing today, 
Could it be said of you that it's more necessary that you remain on the account of others? In our individual lives, if we left tomorrow, would our contribution be missed in Stellenbosch, in our school, wherever we work, in our varsity? Would we be missed? Not in like a lonely kind of way, you hear what I'm saying? In like a contribution, like what, what is it that Paul is doing for the gospel that he's able to say, for your account, it's better that I stay. And I want to challenge us, is it better that we stay? Or does it matter if you go back to America or you go back to East London or wherever it is you're from? And then we have to zoom out a little bit and ask the same question of our church, about new gen. And we have to ask, well, would, would Stellenbosch, if we had to shut it down and say, guys, oh, sorry, from next week, no more meetings, would Stellenbosch, would somebody come and say, no, we want you to remain, not just you guys, but someone else in the community, come and say, no, please stay, you're bringing justice. You're helping the poor. You're bringing a gospel that we haven't heard. Could we say of our church, it's better for you that we remain? Or is it just like, oh, well, whatever. If they're here, they're here. If they're not, they're not. And I, I, I contend this morning, in closing, I promise that anyone who's able to answer yes to those questions, anyone who's able to say yes, if I remain, it's more beneficial for someone else, for some other group of people, it can only say yes because they've made loads and loads of decisions around selflessness. They, it, this is a practical thing. It's not, it's not some ethereal theological thing I'm trying to get across to you. I'm trying to show you that if you show me a selfless person, I will show you a person who is making a significant mark on people's lives. If someone is selfless, they're making marks on people's lives. It's not rock and science. It's, it's, it's a conscious decision. It's like, I don't feel like doing this. I don't feel like whatever it is. But I'm going to do it anyway. That makes a difference to somebody's life. It's... I'm afraid I'm going to get hurt again by going into church. That other church hurt me. Say, no, 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 no. Community needs me. And I need community. I'm going, to, I'm going to lay down what I want. Just stay at home and watch a nice, comfortable DSTV, God TV thing with a nice, comfy thing and my dog next to me and my popcorn. No, no, no. I'm going to pull myself out of that and what I want. And I'm going to do something selfless. And I'm going to get out of bed and I'm going to go and be part of a community, whether it's this one or another one in our town. Or maybe it's like I'm just not that kind of person. I can't do that. I'm not that kind of person. There's a subtle pride there. I know you don't mean it like that, but it's like, I know better than you, God. You gave me a gift, but I know better than you. God's saying, it's like some of us are sitting on eggs, like chickens, sitting on our eggs, and we're keeping all our gifts to ourselves. Man, we need an explosion of the priesthood of all believers. And by that I mean, Jeff, you know what you're good at. You know what your gifts are, and you say, I want to bring that to bear. Whether it costs me time, whether it costs me effort, whether I don't feel like it, because I want to tell you there's some Sundays where I don't feel like standing and preaching. <gasps> but I do. Because I say, God, you've called me. God, I don't feel equipped to preach, but God, you equip me. God, I feel weak, but you make me strong. God, I feel like I always say the wrong things and people get cross. Yes, that's fine, Paul, you do. <laughs> Do you see what the, what the Apostle Paul does so beautifully? Is that he, he subjugates what he wants. And it's not just like a small little thing. It's a big deal. He's tired. He wants to go and be with Jesus. And he puts that down and he says, for the sake of the people, maybe I'm going to stay. I'm going to stay for the sake of these people. And what he's doing, and this is my, where I'm going next week, is he's participating in the story of Jesus. 
He is modeling what Jesus did. And each of us are called to participate in the story of Jesus. This is, we're, not, we're not meant to be Jesus. We're not meant to go around getting 12 disciples and you know, doing all of that and like trying to copy Jesus. But we're meant to be like him. We're meant to participate in the story of Jesus. And my closing challenge to you is, are you participating in the story of Jesus? Just like Jesus suffered, Paul says, I will suffer. Just like Jesus was maligned out of envy and evil motives and eventually killed, so would Paul be maligned out of evil motives and eventually killed. Just like Jesus was prepared to come down in the flesh choosing selflessness rather than selfishness, rather than just staying up in heaven, that he would live and die for the sake of people. So Paul says, I'm going to orientate my life like that. He's participating in the story of Jesus. Let's close. I can ask you to stand with me. I want you to go to, don't close your Bibles yet. Go with me to Philippians chapter 2. And I want us to read together. If you've got a, if you've got a different version to the ESV, maybe read in your head. Not because it's a bad version, just so we aren't all saying different things. I want us to read chapter 2. Verse 3 to verse 11, together, as this is a seal of what God is speaking to us this morning out of this text. Remember, I've just finished with Paul following the example of Jesus. And now we want to read about what Jesus did, the example that Paul is following. Let's go from verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father, as we read those words about Jesus and what He's done, Lord, come and stir our hearts. Move us to be like Jesus. We already know we're empowered by the Holy Spirit. We know it's not us. We know that it's only You, God. It's only Jesus in us that even enables us to think these thoughts. And Father, we cry out to You this morning that You'd come and give us a fresh, eternal perspective. Take us into that crow's nest on the heavenly ship. Let us see afresh. God, I, I, right now I want to ask you for every circumstance being faced in front of people. God, you know what is in this room. You know the trials. You know the tribulations. You know the prayers that even this morning as I've been speaking have been rising up in people's hearts crying out, God, deliver me. God, help me. God, sustain me. 
And Father, I want to pray over this community, God, that we would have stories and testimonies of exactly that. That they would say, I didn't understand. I didn't know what God was doing. I faced this thing and I thought it was the end. And yet he brought me out the other side. And yet I can now, maybe I can't even understand it yet. And one day I know I can trust him. Right now, Father, whatever people are facing, I want to ask if that's you this morning. I'm not going to ask you to respond and come forward or anything like that. Just relax. I just want to ask you that in your heart, if you've been angry with God, I want to ask you to repent. If you've not understood and that's left you confused and full of doubts, I want to say, first of all, that's okay. There's lots of precedent in God's Word for people who've struggled and have doubted. But at the same time, I want to remind you that God is speaking these words over us from Philippians. And I want to ask you to take a a step in your heart in saying, Jesus, I surrender. I don't understand. I don't have to understand. I surrender before you. Some of us are living with offenses and hurts and past circumstances which we're kind of holding God ransom to. I want to ask you this morning, cry out in your heart, Father, help me release these things. They're keeping me in bondage. They're stopping me from moving forward in you. Would you take them and help me to release them? There might be another ten things going on in your heart. I can't get to each and every eventuality, but the Holy Spirit can. Whatever's going on in your heart right now, let Him speak to you. Let Him speak to you this afternoon. Let Him speak to you tonight. Let Him speak to you through the coming weeks. I want to just coach us pastorally that these things are not just... God can do it in one moment. Yes, we can walk out with an absolute surrender in our hearts. But in my experience, more often than not, we're going to need to keep fighting that thing and turning down the volume, that that white noise that has been there in this situation. We're going before our Father and saying, Father, help me turn the noise down. And tomorrow morning we're getting up and saying, Father, help me turn the noise down. And the Holy Spirit comes and by His grace, we look back in five, ten years' time, and it's quiet. Sometimes just a few months, sometimes just a few weeks. He can, the Spirit can do whatever He wants. I don't want to be prescriptive. I just want to don't, don't, don't leave us unhelpfully that we just think it's a moment and we walk out of here and that's it. Come and turn down the volume, Lord, in our hearts. Let's take communion together. Let's do it in small groups, just praying together. Or if you want to do it on your own, that's great. Remembering the body of Christ, the blood of Christ. And then I want to make ourselves available. I've asked some leaders to be ready up here at the front at the end of the meeting. If you're a leader, please, and I haven't, haven't found you, come and join us. And let's, if you feel like your circumstance, you just want people to gather around you, whatever you're facing, and to cry out to God with you. Come and we want to do that with you.
Let's take communion together.